0: Fugitive Waves is made possible in part by Betterment, an online investment manager designed to transform the way you invest. Over 30,000 customers are already investing with Betterment to optimize returns, save time, and minimize taxes. Upgrade your investment approach with Betterment's cutting-edge technology by visiting betterment.com waves.
1: We are in London at Terminal Studios rehearsing for a tribute show to Kate, my sister, my dear sister. It's actually a celebration of her music, which is amazing. Now that I'm sitting here actually listening to other people singing her stuff, rather than being on stage with her. Please say your name, your full name, Anna? Anna McGarrigal. I've been called upon to straighten out chord sequences and uh, something that I've never had to do before and I wasn't sure I was even capable of doing it because Kate was uh, a complicated songwriter. I've been lazy all these years but I just never had to play them. (laughs) I always knew my sister was brilliant, beautiful and brilliant. But because she was my sister, it's not that I didn't revere her. It's difficult to revere your sister. But now that she's not here, I revere her. I wish I could tell
2: her that. From Radiotopia and PRX, welcome to Fugitive Waves. Lost recordings, shards of sound, stories from the flip side of history. We're the Kitchen Sisters, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson it's friday june 11th 2010 this is davia nelson of the kitchen sisters we are at the terminal studios the last day of rehearsals for the kate mcgarrico tribute Always looking for hidden kitchens and we are always searching for sound. Bethnal Green Road in the east end of London held both. We were in London recording at the Terminal Studios where a rehearsal for a tribute concert to the late great Kate McGarrigal was underway. Came time for lunch, we left the studio, walked a few blocks, hung a right, and there was G. Kelly Pie & Mash Shop where eels were turning into lunch.
3: Eels,
4: <laughs> jelly deals, and stew eels. Stew deals, of course, are cooked. Jelly deals are served in what they call jelly. My name is Len, and I've been driving a cab for 40 years as I'm 79 years of age now. The doctor says I'm the fittest man in town. <laughs> Kelly's at an old traditional pie and mash shop, homemade pies, mashed potatoes and something called liquor, it's actually the parsley sauce, uh, which you um, douse with vinegar, salt, and pepper. It, it was the cheapest East End meal, and the children were brought up on pies, mash, and liquor. Not, it must have the liquor. The people that don't have enough money to buy steak and chips. In
2: 1915, Samuel Robert Kelly opened his noted eel and pie shop on Bethnal Green Road. He and his wife, Matilda, had four children, who all went on to open eel and pie shops themselves. The shop was known for its high standards of quality and cleanliness, which makes sense of what we saw. At first glance, we couldn't figure out if we were looking at a medical dispensary or a cafe. White marble tables, white tile walls, a spare, sanitary look to the place. Then we spotted the pot of eels and pile of pies.
5: I was not afraid. I was not afraid into the ahs. And I was not afraid. No, I
6: was
5: not afraid. Okay, so what's going on? Yeah, ready? Okay. Take place.
6: One, need two, two okay. yeah. three. And it's <laughs>
2: Did we order the eels and take them back to the studio to share with the singers? No, not this first time. We trundled further down the road and came back with Vietnamese food to go, but talking eels. As if we had just discovered the most hidden kitchen of all.
3: We were nice young adults. We proved ourselves, we showed results.
2: Of course, all the Londoners there knew about them, and more than a few dropped in for pie and mash upon occasion. Turned out, these shops, once a staple of London life, are now a dying breed, along with the eels they serve. But the summer sun came down on our
3: Then someone
2: said, Well, if it's eels you're after, you better go to Eel Pie Island, up the Thames. Our search for the source of these vanishing eels led us to southwest London, on the edge of Twickenham, to a tiny slice of land. Now a small bohemian community of artists, inventors, river gypsies, and... builders, Eel Pie Island has a flamboyant history that stretches from Henry VIII to the Rolling Stones.
4: This week's adventure, the case of the complicated poisoning at Eel Pie Island. I say, who? That's Eel Pie Island up ahead. I wonder if the ale at the inn is as cool as I remember it. And the Eel Pie... Crust all flaky and tender. I have no interest whatever in eel, Watson. <coughs> Nasty, slimy fish. Eel pie. Think of an apple pie filled with cooked eel. My name's Dan Van Der Vat. I have lived here on Eel Pie Island for about 30 years. The only inhabited island on the tidal Thames. I ended up writing a book about it. The story goes, King Henry VIII in the 16th century would be rowed up River Thames on the Royal Barge to Hampton Court, fantastic palace, a couple of miles upstream. On his way past the island, Henry, who was actually rather a large gentleman, was overcome by hunger. He said, stop the barge and bring us a pie. Bring us an eel pie. He sent a minion ashore to buy him an eel pie from the famous stall run by a mistress mayo. He acquired a taste for her pies and then frequently indulged it.
7: Eel pie island was where they used to fish out the eels. In London, you'd see these big eels in the front of fishmonger shops.
8: Big fact, some of them as thick as your arm, lying around on the marble slabs.
4: There was a public house here, a pub on Eel Pie Island. It was there for centuries, it had a bowling alley and it used to sell beer and presumably eel pies. It was quite smart in 1830, just in time for Charles Dickens. He has one of his characters, Nicholas Nickleby, come to Eel Pie Island for a picnic by boat.
9: Eel Pie Island had a hotel on it from the 1800s that was effectively derelict by the mid-1950s. And a couple of people started a jazz club on it. I'm Russell Clarke, rock and roll historian from London. You know, Michael Snapper was an antique dealer, scrap dealer. Eel Pie
4: Island was going cheap at some stage, so he just upped and bought it. What to do with it? Why not stage a concert? Because it had a rather interesting dance hall attached to it.
7: The hotel stood alone. I remember it a little bit like a Charles Adams drawing. My name is Angelica Houston. I'm an actress. I grew up in London in the early 60s. It was a time when a lot of old ways were meeting a lot of new ways. From the rations and the hardships of the Second World War and the blitz and hunger Eelpie Island, you know, the the eels that had been cut up on these white marble slabs since the days of Henry VIII were suddenly meeting the youth
8: quake. Eelpie Island, I used to come as a 16-year-old. It was dark and it was summertime and we would dance. My name's Emily Young. You had the trad jazz bands playing and the way we used to dance to it, you had to be quick on your foot. You were jiving and doing the Charleston at the same time.
9: In the late 1950s in particular there was a movement that looked towards America, it was more New Orleans jazz. It was called trad, traditional jazz, played by people in coffee shops and small bars. People like Ken Collier, clarinet player and Acker Bilk.
10: The driving force behind the club was Arthur Chisnell. He worked in an antique shop for Michael Snapper and Arthur began putting parties on there which initially were just free. It was called Eel Island. Land. I'm Michelle Whitby. I co-authored the book Eel Island. Most people are under the impression that Arthur set up the club. You know, he wanted to be a cool rock and roll promoter, but his motives were very different. He had a huge interest in teenagers, which after the Second World War in the mid-50s were a completely new phenomenon. General society just saw them as a threat, whereas Arthur wanted to know how to help them. purposefully included amongst the club members, professional people, doctors, lawyers. If someone had a problem, he would try and steer them in the direction of the right person. He called it a social experiment and used the music as a way of attracting these youngsters.
4: When you're too far separated from the parameters of the normal culture, your head breaks. People who were lucky got into the art schools where they could release these pressures in the form of music there were about three four hundred people in the art schools who were formulating the groups that we know today wait,
11: wait, wait.
9: Keith Richard, Eric Clapton, all of those guys came out of art school. In the late 50s, early 60s, it was a bit of a hotbed for things like jazz and rock and roll and bohemianism. Ronnie Wood went to Ealing Art College. Pete Townsend went to Ealing Art College. Jimmy Page went to Sutton Art College. Jeff Beck went to Wimbledon. And Eric Clapton went to Kingston. These are all along the River Thames in probably a 20 mile radius. Riverfield Pie Island, people rather jokingly refer to it as the Thames Delta. Hello, listen to Bob
4: Mills on GLR, BBC Radio for London 94.9. My very special guest this morning is uh, Eric Clapton. Who are we talking to now? Michelle. Hi there. Hello, Michelle. Uh, You've got a question for Eric.
8: I have. Eric,
10: I'm writing a book about the history of Ilpie Island.
4: Oh, God. Well, because I, I did a lot of work there. Yeah. Um, well, I was like a beatnik back in the early 60s. That was the only thing there was. You go to Richmond or Kingston and sit around in a coffee bar in the afternoon and wait for the time to go over the bridge to the island. And then see all these great, like Ken
3: Collier.
9: A number of these kids went to Pie Island and saw trad jazz and then folk and skiffle. Skiffle is kind of the punk of its time, 1955, 1956. Almost every rock and roller that you've heard of that is from London would have been in a skiffle group. Kids have seen Elvis and they want to do it themselves.
10: I was wondering if you could tell me what your best and worst memories were
4: of playing at Ville Pie Island. One of the worst memories was having to carry John Mayall's organ across the bridge. Oh God. He had a B3 with two handles that he'd stick through it and uh, the floor, we'd stand in the middle of the floor and it would bounce up and down so hard you didn't have to dance.
9: Leal Pie Island by the early 60s was taken over by Rhythm & Blues harmonica player, Cyril Davis, formed Cyril Davis All-Stars. He died at the age of 32 of leukemia, and his place was taken by Long John Baldry. There is a story that uh, the night that Cyril Davis died, they had a booking at Eel Pie, and they went on and played their show without Cyril. And afterwards, on the local railway station, which is Twickenham in southwest London, Long John Baldry came across a young guy, a little bit drunk, and playing the harmonica and singing. And his name was Rod Stewart and uh, uh, John Baldry went over to him and said, do you want to join a band?
3: the
10: The
9: Yardbirds, Jeff
10: Beck and Jimmy Page, Faces, people would come and go and play in different bands.
4: It was a great melting pot. You might bump into Mick Jagger in the bar, you know, when the Stones were first starting. You'd see, like, Pete Townsend coming through, or Ray Davis, or Keith, or Bowie. Any band that was worth its salt had to play there. Until you ticked off that one on your itinerary, you hadn't really arrived. Paul Jones, I played with the 60s band Manfred Mann. You drove up here in your van and then you unloaded stuff and just pushed it on a trolley across this strange little footbridge.
8: The footbridge was ropey as anything, decrepit. It was muddy, old London ramshackle river life with old barges where people were living.
9: You had to pay to get over the bridge. If you didn't want to pay, you swam across, and lots of people did.
7: The room would just be throbbing. Hot, humid, full of cigarette smoke, sweat. You didn't take a lot of baths in England at the time. There wasn't a lot of shampooing going on. Music would blare, and those who weren't dancing were snogging, kissing, necking. It was a kind of ritual thing.
8: We just loved dressing up. Beautiful old ramshackle leather jackets. You'd buy an old Victorian 19, and you'd have all the fluffy white lacy cuffs underneath this Jacobean velvet look. Tight jeans, bell-bottoms and hipsters, little mini skirt. It was just before the hippies came and the world changed. The island, you know, had
10: gained quite a reputation. The Rolling Stones, for instance, Brian Jones actually phoned Arthur and said, you know, we'd like to play the island. And they played a total of 13 dates over here in 1963. I think they got about 50 quid.
9: Pink Floyd were one of the last groups and they played there in, you know, 1967. Pie closed for being a health hazard, it was dilapidated. It was there for 11 years, and in that time, 30,000 young kids were members of the club. In 1967, the police forced its closure. Within days, people were moving in hoping to create a
4: utopian commune. In 1969, the hotel briefly reopened as Colonel Barefoot's rock garden, welcoming bands like Black Sabbath and the Edgar
9: Broughton Band. A number of people decided just to move in and live there, what we would call squatting. In the early 70s, that was really the movement. Particularly in London, where after the war, there were a lot of properties left empty that had been bombed, and before they could be demolished, people would just colonize them.
8: It was a wasteland. It was squattable. The river authority wasn't doing anything with it. This bit was sort of claimed by youth culture.
10: The electric had been cut off and the water, and it was freezing cold, so they just started ripping the building to pieces to keep themselves warm, and then it just became unfit for human habitation. Sadly, in
4: 1971, the hotel burnt down in mysterious circumstances. The hotel was pulled down and the owner got permission to construct 18 townhouses. One of the great institutions of rock and roll music. What is it now?
10: The island is half residential and half boatyards, uh-huh. And where the hotel was, is now houses.
4: But it's still, there's still artisans over there. Yeah, there's still crafts yeah, yeah, there's
10: all sorts of people over there, sort of sculptors and stone carvers and uh, blacksmiths. And...
7: Ilpie Island, it's a very specific little place in space and time. This uh, little point of liberation down on the Thames. Very, very alive, just like the
0: eels. Eel Pie Island was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, mixed by Jim McKee. Fugitive Waves is part of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of the best story driven, creative, cutting edge radio shows on earth. Shows like 99% Invisible, 99% Invisible The Truth, Truth Strangers, Strangers. Theory, of Theory of Everything, Love and Radio, Radio Diaries, and Us. Fugitive Waves from the Kitchen Sisters. Our Radiotopia partners are launching new stories each week. Here's a sneak preview of the latest from Love and Radio.
6: There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is an area as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is a dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be known as another planet.
0: Imagine walking up and seeing a stranger in the mirror. That's what happened to Jenny Rowell. Here's a sneak preview from the latest episode of Strangers.
5: You know, I was having visitors come to the hospital and tell me, you look great. No one would be honest with me. And someone says, I didn't even notice. Well, obviously that's not true, because surely I didn't look like
0: this two days ago. If you're interested in supporting this and other shows like it, email sponsor at prx.org. Radiotopia from PRX is made possible with support from the Knight Foundation, and our launch sponsor, MailChimp, who celebrate creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Get to know
2: your new favorite podcast at radiotopia.fm.
0: The hidden world of Kate McGarrigle. We are
1: in London at Terminal Studios, rehearsing for a tribute show to Kate, my sister, my dear sister. It's actually a celebration of her music, which is amazing. Now that I'm sitting here, actually listening to other people singing her stuff, rather than being on stage with her, please say your name, your full name, Anna, Anna McGarable. I've been called upon to straighten out chord sequences and something that I've never had to do before, and I wasn't sure I was even capable of doing it because Kate was a complicated songwriter. I've been lazy all these years, but I just never had to play them. <laughs> I always knew my sister was brilliant, beautiful and brilliant. But because she was my sister, it's not that I didn't revere her. It's difficult to revere your sister. But now that she's not here, I revere her. I wish I could tell her that.
2: It's Friday, June 11th, 2010. This is Davia Nelson of the Kitchen Sisters. We are at the Terminal Studios. It's the last day of rehearsals for the Kate McGarraco tribute.
8: Boys. I'm making my professional folk music debut today because <laughs> I normally perform with machines. And uh, it's the Kate McGarrigle Tribute Concert at the Royal Festival in London. And on the stage there's many wainwrights. So it's quite an all-star band. Martha, Rufus, Anna. It's actually 11.30 the show starts at 4.30 and I can't believe how relaxed they all are but there you go. That's because they're not machines.
6: My name is Chaim Tannenbaum. I knew Kate. When we were 16 or something. There was a very small folk music scene, I guess, in Montreal. We met at little parties that people would have, We met at folk clubs. There was a group of people in Montreal, the Mountain City Four. There were Peter Weld and Jack Nissenson and Kate Nana. There were some blues and Woody Guthrie songs and English ballads, and sailing songs, and folk songs. A banjo, guitar situation. Kate and Anna weren't writing yet. The first songs Kate played in that group on the piano were traveling on for Jesus. And God knows how much we can bear. We're our heavenly Father's children. You know he loves us. He loves us one and all. Because he knows, yes, he knows just how much we can bear. Then we went through a Ma Rainey phase together. And we Bessie Smithed for a while. We did Oh Papa. Just like a rainbow, I'm fading away. My baby leaves me most every day. Walking Blues, that's another Ma Rainey that found its way into the McGarrigal Tannenbaum repertoire. But really, my influences are Kate and Anna McGarrigal.
5: Martha Wainwright, Kate's daughter and we're backstage at the World Festival Hall here in London on the South Bank. I'm gonna sing Matapedia, which is a song that my mom wrote about me and herself. I think that Kate started with trying to capture as much of the story in each sentence, and especially those that weren't necessarily about her. She had a great memory for history and for what she read, and so she wanted to show that um, scholarly mind of hers in her lyrics and in her songs. Did you two ever write music together? No. She wanted to, and she tried, and, you know, I'm very... um, insecure about writing songs, so I do it in private, and I didn't know what I had to offer. She would try to pull me out of my shell a bit, and I unfortunately I, I uh, dragged my feet.
11: I hope tonight's a kind of celebration, really. Um, it's sounding really beautiful though, don't you think? My name is Nick Cave. This is very warm, very congenial. <laughs> it's a family affair, very different world from the one I'm involved in, you know. Some years ago, I was the director of a meltdown here, and they were doing this tribute to Harry Smith, and the McGarrigals were part of that. thought oh, that so beautiful. And I asked them to come in and I was making a record of some months later if they would come in and sing the backing vocals on the record which was a huge thing for my band, The Bad Seeds, to do because it was so um, such a different sound to bring into what we normally do. What happened in the studio when they worked with us that I found really extraordinary and a real kind of honour to be able to watch in progress was the way that they put their vocals together. We would play a song to them and they would kind of put their heads together and you weren't sort of invited into this kind of Scenario at all in a, in a way, and just kind of kind of hear this sort of very quiet peeping and sort of, mm-hmm, 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 kind of coming out an occasional kind of squabble or come, over over something or other, and then they would perform this stuff. So we like were all just sort of sitting there with our mouths open, gobsmacked. Really, what they were bringing to the whole thing was such a sort of um, vulnerability to the to what we were doing, this other side.
2: Okay, here's one other question, Heart Like a Wheel. It's the first song I wrote in 1969,
1: 1970. I guess I wrote it because I had a broken heart. (laughs) Kate and her friend, Roma Barron, went to New York Sometime around 1969, Kate dropped out of McGill, and she called me. They were visiting all the cafes in Greenwich Village, and she said, you know, people are writing their own songs down here. And we were still singing, you know, collected folk songs by, you know, whomever. So it just coincided with uh, unhappiness in my life, so I attempted to write a a song on our old piano in Saint-Severry.
2: How long did that song... Okay, five minutes. <laughs>
6: It place oh, 1, you don't need to? 2, yeah. three.
3: We proved ourselves, we showed results Like cats and dogs who'd undergone a fix Fashionably cynical And love to us was clinical Long ago, we gave up getting all kicks But the summer sun came down on all And it was
1: fit, fun to feel, fun to fall Into
3: a sloppy teenage scene. Gossiping and having crushes and dimming lights to hide our blushes. My God, I thought I was 16. Night comes. This crazy summer is past now. Sunrise to sunset is fading fast now. And all I want is to see a rope on that tree. So bring back the bagels and bring back the locks. Let's have. bring back the peace